Laughing and Weeping, the Year Beginning Conference. Over the New Year 2009 holiday, Father Richard Rohr and Russ Hudson presented a teaching of the Enneagram to over 600 people in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This is the opening session with Father Richard Rohr, the Enneagram and Non-Dual Thinking. Well, good afternoon. Now we start moving into the meat of it all. But it's really been quite lovely. Uh, the evening and the morning, thank you for your gracious participation. What a way to start the year. I was saying to people the last few days that I said, oh God, so often I'm always talking about serious things and heavy things and profound things and meaningful things. And I said, this one will be fun. And uh, now as I look at my notes, I think I'm going to make this one heavy too. So <laughs> forgive me. I'll try not. But as I told you earlier, you saw in the literature, my real attempt is merely to back up and surround what I know is going to be Russ's wonderful work and trying to show how the Enneagram is just a handmade tool, made to order, for teaching us what I think we desperately need to be taught. And there's another way we have been taught, and it is in our hard wiring. I've talked about it here in previous years at other conferences, the one on paradox, even the ones on contemplation. But now we want to tie it up particularly with the Enneagram, and that is what I'm calling non-dual thinking. I deliberately use that word uh, in a way uh, for its shock value, because I do know most Western people ha are not familiar with the word. They hear it and they immediately think it's some kind of Eastern religion or New Age idea, because, frankly, the term non-dual thinking was not used by the Western tradition or the Western mystics. They talked that way, but they didn't describe it that way, do you see? So to most of us, it sounds like a breaking in uh, to a, a new and probably even dangerous territory. Um, but it, it seems to me that if we don't master this, at least with some segment of the population, uh, rather quickly. I don't see how we're going to mature religion or grow up religion, and I don't see how we're going to have a, a humane politics or integrated politics. And then just we could add on to that in our family lives, in our community and social lives. I think we've almost been trained for conflict. We've been trained to misunderstand one another to misinterpret one another, because what we all have a PhD in is dualistic thinking. <laughs> it's actually what you think it means to be smart. And that's why even education has not gotten us out of it. In fact, in some ways, it dug a deeper hole. Because <laughs> people think they're smart when they're more articulate at being dualistic. Do you understand? <laughs> they have more facts, information, more data, photographic memory, so they can pull out a repartee uh, to whatever you say. And this is called civil discourse. <laughs> this is the very nature of the Western debate, which is someone says something and you immediately come, well, I don't think that's always true. Hmm? It's all downhill from there, right? 
Because you will both at that moment get ego invested in your own opinion. And the broader picture, the deeper picture cannot be seen once the ego is invested. It will, it will always, uh, once you've made one statement and you've all been in these kind of arguments, <laughs> it, it's a save face kind of thing. It's I don't want to look foolish. I don't want to back down. I've already defined my turf. I can't change opinions now, right? So I've got to prove my opinion is right, even though, <clears throat> as we've recently seen in our country and in our politics, all the evidence says it's not right. Huh? And at that point, people can have overwhelming evidence, huh? and they will still hold on to their position. You all could tell 10 stories like that. Huh? That's how much the ego is invested. It, it cannot admit it's wrong once it has defined itself in what I sometimes call polarity thinking. Now, polarity thinking is the norm. We tend to think in dyads, in opposition, in comparison to another idea. And we fixate on that. And we rush toward it, wrap ourselves around it, and then cannot back off of it. And if there is not something to teach us that that framing of conversation, that framing of dialogue, that framing of debate is inadequate to the task. It can't get you there. If there's not something that teaches you that, most of us remain highly invested in dualistic thinking, even though, uh, to quote Dr. Phil again, uh, as he loves to say, is that working for you? You know, <laughs> it clearly isn't working. <laughs> And yet, like all addicts say, you keep doing again and again what doesn't work. <laughs> what creates uh, unbearable conflict, impossible scenarios of understanding. We see that it is taken over the highest levels of our Congress and government so that uh, humane conversation is almost impossible among people who are highly educated who are lawyers, who are supposed to be, well, I guess most of them are lawyers, I don't know, uh, critical thinkers, but you say, God, is this the best you can do? After, after all that education, that's why education, and we've said this from this podium many times, education is not the same as transformation. And, and uh, the reason I, I so deeply believe in the Enneagram is it is a tool of transformation. And I think it's also why the church is so threatened by it. Because it's not just more information. It's really talking about rearranging the whole psyche and allowing the psyche to have a new pair of eyes from which to see and to read reality. Uh, I went home to check on my dog during the break. And uh, I didn't plan this ahead of time, but I just checked it out, having a suspicion. A book that you my generation of Catholics will certainly recognize. The New Baltimore Catechism, number two, all right? The official revised edition, written by Father McGuire from somewhere in New Jersey, all right? And this was imposed on something like five generations of us, you know, as absolute truth. This was the foundation. If you got this, we used to have to memorize this. You remember, right? Um, well, I just looked, all right, lesson six, right? <laughs> I was looking for what is the definition of sin that most of us uh, were raised in. 
And from what I've heard from my Anglican and Protestant and evangelical brothers and sisters, you really didn't move far from us. I, I keep saying I wish you'd reformed Catholicism. Uh, but it, it's the same thing all over again. <laughs> and again, and again, and again. Why? Because all of us, despite whoever your reformer was, still operated from dualistic thinking. In fact, most of the reformations were highly dualistic at their very beginning. They didn't begin with mystics who moved beyond this either-or way of thinking, this all-or-nothing way of thinking that is the lowest level of thinking. And everybody doing these studies of, of evolution of consciousness seems to be on grand agreement. Some say there's six stages, some five, some eight, some nine stages of consciousness, but they're all coming to a consensus that the lowest level of consciousness, what I've called the lizard brain, uh, is entirely dualistic, all right? If you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not in my race and my religion, you're my enemy. <laughs> and I need to fear you, and I need to oppose you. You're a problem. So fear largely dominates a life at that level. The highest level is what we're calling here non-dual thinking. Anyway, back to lesson six of the Baltimore Catechism. <laughs> this was the wonderful one with the milk bottles. Do you see the milk? Remember the milk bottles? There was the black milk bottle, the soul full of sin. Uh, there was the mixed milk bottle uh, with little venial sins. And uh, then there was the fully white milk bottle right after baptism, but it didn't last long because <laughs> uh, you, you undoubtedly sin very quickly after baptism. <laughs> but here, if you could read it in big letters, sin is any act forbidden by God. All right. All right. That's the way we were trained. Sin is any act forbidden by God. I just want to use that as a starting point to show you how orthodox and really traditional, the, the uh, Enneagram is. Because the Enneagram does not define evil or sin in terms of an authority position, that a higher-up declared it to be bad. It's much closer to what our tradition would have called natural law. That it's not just because God said it's bad, which makes evil really arbitrary. There are certain things God just decided God didn't like. You understand? And if you do them, God doesn't like you. Right? That, that's what you get to with this notion of sin is any act forbidden by God. The natural law tradition, and I'd like to say brilliantly, the Enneagram tradition is based on actual insight. It, it says, you know, sin isn't just something forbidden by God. Sin is that which doesn't work. <laughs> Sin is, is self-defeating behavior. Sin messes you up. It's not God who doesn't like it. It's you who shouldn't like it. Or as I said recently in, our, in an article, we're, we're not punished for our sins, which is the way we almost all think. We're punished by our sins. Now, you want to find an instrument that teaches that. You just can't get much better than the Enneagram. <laughs> Your sin is your own self-defeating, destructive game that works against you. It doesn't make you love. It doesn't make you live. It doesn't make you connect. It doesn't make you free. It doesn't make you alive. All the things that matter. 
It doesn't teach you mercy. It doesn't teach you forgiveness. First of all, toward yourself, and very soon, toward everybody else. So I want to say that the Enneagram is based on an understanding of sin. And I know a lot of people don't even like that word because of this lousy foundation we had for it. Just arbitrary things that God doesn't like, and we always feel guilty because we're always doing them. Uh, to simply uh, a a template, a, a vision that helps us see what's real and what's not real, what's life-giving and what isn't life-giving, what works inside of our little system and what doesn't work. Now let me spend just a little more time on uh, what I might mean by dualistic thinking. First of all, it, it achieved a very high level in the West, which is probably why the West produced the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution. Uh, because the Western mind, which is very different than the Semitic mind that Jesus would have spoken from, uh, or the Oriental mind, the Western mind and all the Western languages in one form or another evolved from Greek thinking and Greek logic and the Greek worldview. And God bless the Greeks. I mean, they gave us a lot. <laughs> uh, they were, uh, you know, larger than life uh, people. But... Uh, in one subset of Greek philosophy, it wasn't the big set, it was a subset, was called logic. And in fact, a, a young student was trained in Greek logic as almost the first course in philosophy. It wasn't the whole of philosophy, but it was a starting place to allow a dialectic, to allow critical thinking. So I want to say that, so you don't accuse me now of being dualistic, by idealizing non-dual thinking, all right? And so I'm not saying dualistic thinking is bad. In fact, it's necessary. Only if you've succeeded at critical thinking and then come up against some things where it doesn't give me access, it doesn't work, it, it, it doesn't help me with things like infinity, love, death, freedom, and God, the biggies. Once you get to those, the rational, critical, dualistic mind is largely not just useless, it's in the way. Which is why uh, the West, uh, more than any other culture, produced atheism. Because we taught them this mode could get them there, and when it didn't get them there, they said, well, those things then are not true, because I haven't found access to God, infinity, love, truth, death, and freedom. I, I can't deal with the biggies by the rational mind, so let's just deny the whole thing. So as I see, we really failed in our own task in, in Western religion, in recognizing that we had to give our people a different tool, a different access point. Now, as you well know, those of you who've come to our conferences for years, our code name for that different access point, that different mind is contemplation. It's a different set of eyes. It's a different set of lenses. It's an alternative consciousness by which you can see uh, and read and access reality. But back to Greek logic. Greek logic is based on three principles. First, the law of identity. Secondly, the law of contradiction. And third, the law of the excluded third. 
I remember being taught this, 1962, Detroit, Michigan, right? The law of identity, A equals A. Things that are the same are the same. That seems easy enough, but the second follows from it. If A equals A, then A cannot be B. Which and B is defined as that which is not A. You follow me? All right. Everything comes forth from these three principles. You're not rational unless you understand this. Huh? And when you talk irrationally, or when your wife accuses you of being irrational, you're not following the law of identity, the law of contradiction, or the law of the excluded third. Huh? The law of the excluded third is simply A cannot be both A and B at the same time. Right Now, those of you who attended the conference here several years ago on the Trinity, I remember even at that time saying, if there's any group who should have been prepared to move beyond Greek logic, it should have been Christians. <laughs> because our centerpiece of our theology was this obscure, strange doctrine that none of us could deal with, and we just shelved it as a mystery, was the doctrine of the Trinity. Because the doctrine of the Trinity uh, undoes all three principles. <laughs> all right, the Father is the Father, but the Father is also the Son, and the Father is the Son and the Holy Spirit at the same time. The whole game's over. Do you understand? <laughs> the whole principle of Greek logic is undone by the theological belief of Christians that God is Trinitarian. One, yet three. Mathematically, you can't deal with that. And so the Irish nuns told us, don't think about it, all right? <laughs> so at least that's what they told us. Nothing against the Irish, but that was the solution. Don't think about mysteries, just believe them, all right? Now, when, when you try to approach truth, not by just believing things because the top says it's true, but by getting the insight, which is what the Enneagram does for us, then we can start struggling in a good way with what's really going on here, huh? Instead of simply saying, I believe it or I don't believe it. You understand? You see why we created atheism? The believers dove in too quickly <coughs> without the struggle. Yes, I believe it because the Pope said so. Or if you're Protestant, I believe it because there's a Bible verse somewhere that says so. That really doesn't make you wise. It gives you no subtlety of knowledge. It gives you no wisdom to simply believe things because an authoritative text or a pope, or a priest, or a bishop says it's true. You understand? You, ref you actually refuse the human struggle. You don't need the human struggle. And I think that's why the conservative position, which prefers authority from outside, uh, will always be a common position. Always. Uh, now, I know I'm, I'm prejudiced. I got my own biases. But I think it's largely laziness. You know? <laughs> I don't want to deal with the subtlety of things, you know? So to just accept it because an authority said it is, is easy. And I'd say it's the best way to start. That's the best way to teach children. I mean, didn't you teach yours? Because mother said so. Do you understand? <laughs> and I'm your mother, right? And I said you should do it. Shut up and do it. That's, that's the only way to get kids started, you understand? To invoke the principle of authority. But as you parents well know, they grow up, right? <laughs> and at a certain age, the principle of authority doesn't work anymore. That's what began to happen in the 16th century with Martin Luther. I mean, you can almost correlate. We're, we're, as a church, we're 16 years old. 
You've heard me say this many times. I believe we grew up a year a century in our capacity to comprehend the mystery of Christianity. And ever since we've been 16, 16, 17, 18, 19, and now 20, this has been the nature of our dialogue, the way teenagers argue, right? All or nothing thinking, either or thinking, you're either totally right or you're totally wrong, right? You're either Catholic or you're Lutheran. There's no in-between, right? And then every group that came along afterwards largely continued to make the same mistake. Now, that's why so many of us are excited about the next conference we're going to give in this room in March on the emerging church. Because what's happening in all the mainline denominations is the broad recognition that this model of reform isn't workable anymore. It doesn't really reform things. Like when I told you this morning about the Lutherans up in Finland, where uh, almost everybody was Lutheran. And yet they had this strange admiration uh, for the Russian Orthodox, who were a a small minority up there. But the Lutherans said this to me, so I'm not misquoting them, I don't think. They said, you know, we Lutherans, we became just as bad as you Catholics. It was the same rational, legalistic, moralistic, while waving the banner of grace. But you see, you can talk about Lutheran grace all you want, but unless you're a non-dual thinker, you can't understand grace. Grace cannot be comprehended by any dualistic mind whatsoever. It breaks down all meritocracies, all two plus two equals four, all worthiness contests, All attempts to say, I earned it, I'm worthy of it, I achieved it, I merited it. So you can be a beneficiary of the wonderful Lutheran reform, but if you're still a lizard brain, you understand? (laughs) You're going to be just as bad as the Catholics who were dualistic, you understand? But fortunately in all of our churches, there always emerged the saints, the mystics. And I know many of you have heard me say this before, but... uh, what what characterizes the, these these people that we call saints and mystics is uh, simply that they um, they've usually loved very profoundly or deeply, or they've suffered very profoundly and deeply. And without any doubt, I want to say that clearly: that the great uh, uh, destroyers and destroy isn't probably too lo- a strong a word of dualistic thinking are great love and great suffering. Right? That, it's not taking a theology course, do you understand? It's not studying the new Calvinist reform. Or what, you might well study that. Right? But if you study it with a dualistic mind, you'll be right back where, you, where the Catholics started. And maybe even worse. <laughs> but if whatever denomination, religion, truth, group you're a part of, if you've entered into the mystery called love, love of your partner, love of of your children, love of your parents. If you at all struggle with what's going on here, why am I giving away my next 40 years to this person who is, is, you know, uh, weak and, and broken just like I am, and yet I love him. I love her. I cannot not give myself to her, to him, to these precious children of mine who cost me so much money and, and, and so much trouble. I still, damn it, love them, right? That's the breakdown of dualistic thinking. And it inevitably leads you to the second, which is great suffering. 
Now, some people are given the great suffering first. And this is why so many of us uh, have such hope in the church of the poor, in people who've suffered and been oppressed and been marginalized in every country and every group. Symbolically, those who've been excluded, kicked out, looked down upon, laughed at, handicapped, poor, right? there, there's simply no doubt those folks have a huge head start in understanding reality, right? Now, I admit, it can also make them bitter. It can go both ways, all right? But, but they, they normally know that life is not two plus two equals four. Why do I have a shriveled arm? I remember a boy asking me in Cincinnati, you know, why? Why should I have to have this? You don't have this. You have two good hands. Why? Why? So, so they deal early on with the illogic, the absurdity, the, the law of, of uh, contradiction and the excluded third. Uh, they know life is not logical. The rest of us, if you're born healthy like I was, white, middle class, American, you don't have to struggle with the absurdity of life. You and I can keep pretending that everybody's normal like we are. And of course, I do mean pretend. Because if we're honest, none of us are whatever normal is supposed to mean. And again, you can see why I love the Enneagram. Because it tells us there's at least nine ways of being normal. <laughs> and, and inside of that, there's a thousand ways of being a six. Maybe two thousand ways of being a six. Huh? It gives us great appreciation for diversity. And that you're not, despite your best attempts, you're not going to make a six into a four. You understand? <laughs> and if you're marrying a six and you're a four, you better accept and learn to love sixness as it is, right? <laughs> because you're not, there's not going to be any radical surgery, right? On some level, he, she is forever going to be a six. And you better see the good side of it. You better fall in love with it. And in that, accept the absurdity of it. And the suffering, it will undoubtedly bring you. But have no doubt, you're bringing him or her some suffering too, all right? <laughs> so... So it goes both ways. It's, it's all a school of love. The whole thing called life is a school of love to pull us out of our natural egocentricity, our natural, I'm the reference point. I'm the grand normal. Why isn't everybody white? Why isn't everybody American? Why isn't everybody heterosexual? Why isn't everybody whatever we think we are that's so wonderful, you know? That, that, that kind of egocentricity has to be undercut radically and dramatically. And what's clear to me is Christianity has not been doing it. Right? Not at all. Not at all. Except, well, one or two percent, it seems. For the most part, we have created very racist people, very classist people. The, the greed that uh, emerged in our country this year didn't emerge in a pagan country, but in a country that loves to call itself Christian, right? <laughs> and thinks of itself as Christian. Greed beyond the, the pharaohs and the, and the czars of, of Russia and Rome emerges in our wonderful Christian country. Why? Because the nature of gluttony and greed and lust and pride and all those capital sins has not been unpackaged by insight, by the nature of how it rots the soul. 
how it destroys you. We just said, do it if the Pope says it's a sin. And of course, the Pope wasn't in any position to say that greed was a sin, because most of the Pope, <laughs> most of the Popes, I mean, this is simply, I'm not trying to be cynical. That's not going to help us, all right? I'm just trying to say they were the de facto emperors of Europe for centuries. And when you're at the top, you can't preach the gospel of Jesus anymore, all right? You live in palaces, and you wear fancy clothes, and you're fed by maids. And so there's a whole level of insight that you don't get anymore, right, about how the world works and how the soul works. It's not even their fault, you understand? <laughs> But it's why people like Francis warned us against taking such positions because there's a structural blindness that comes with power and money. It almost always, when you're identified with power and money, you will almost always justify violence and war. You have to, to maintain your position, to maintain your superiority. War goes with uh, power and money. They're, they're good bed partners. Now, let me just clear away what non-dualistic thinking is not. Because I know some of you, I say, I don't know if I want to go there. It is not relativistic thinking. I've got to use that word first, because Pope Benny loves that word. All right, he's calling everything relativism. He was trained in classic scholastic philosophy, Greek logic. I understand. I can talk that. I'm trained in that. I know where he's coming from, all right? <laughs> But he needs some mystical experience to help him break that whole thing down where it doesn't work anymore. Or he needs great love and great suffering. Where you see, oh yeah, I, I, that's good as far as it goes. And I mean that. It is good as far as it goes. Without logic and order, uh, it would be an utterly incoherent world. And this is what Paul is talking about in his letter to the Romans, huh? The, le the law is good, but it finally cannot get you there, right? But in the first half of life, we tend to idealize law, Greek logic, because we need some order. And I would affirm that. You need order. I, I wouldn't be standing here now talking the way I'm talking if I hadn't been trained in some level of discipline, yes, no, right, wrong, good, bad. It's, it's good to get you started, that's all. Non-dual thinking is not skepticism. Some people think you're saying that. That you're saying that, oh, you know, nothing's really that true or nothing's really false. Just sort of believe what you want. We'd call it fuzzy thinking, I suppose, or lightweight thinking. In fact, I'm convinced that people who can experience non-dual thinking, and I'll, I'll try to describe that eventually, um, have a, a, even, it sharpens their critical faculties. Be, why? Because your egocentricity, your fear, and your anger are out of the way. So you can actually think more critically because that, that, that thing called emotion and, and my egocentric emotions, which we've pinpointed as nine different types, are finally recognized for what they are and that they do not help me see clearly. I see everything through a glass darkly, and I see it through my one righteous idealism, in my case. Apply that to your own case. It's my greatest gift, and simultaneously, it's my worst fault. And that's true of every one of you in this room.
Non-dual thinking is not saying, oh, there are two sides to everything. Now, I'll probably say that. There are two sides to everything. <laughs> but don't dismiss it that, that easily. That is the way non-dual thinking will read reality. I'm going to make a statement now that some of you are going to think is, is grandly political. But I, uh, I'm saying it because I see it. At this point, I'm told 87% of the world is tremendously excited about the election of Barack Obama as president of the United States. I'm saying, why is that true? And even, I was told, at this point, 71% of our country, even after those who voted against him initially, seem in the last couple months to have said, my gosh, I think there might be something here. And I'm not sure, I'm not trying to, to say this guy is a messiah. But the reason people are having so much hope is this man shows a lot of evidence of non-dual thinking, right? It, to an amazing degree. I don't know if any president except Lincoln ever showed that ability to create what he's calling the team of rivals. They said the reason he was elected president of the Harvard Law Review is they had never found in the critical minds that come to Harvard, someone who could get the, the arch conservatives and the rabid liberals to listen to one another <laughs> and to talk to one another. His closest friends say they've never seen him ruffled. <laughs> now, I don't know uh, what the great love or the great suffering might have been in his life, but I know it can't just be his good intellect. Something is allowing this man, maybe it's a gift from God for us because we, we need it. And who knows how he's going to play it out. Let's pray for him that the fights and the hurts that are undoubtedly going to come don't force him back into where we often move. And I want to say this even in terms of some bishops I know, uh, who I knew them when they were younger men or before they were bishops. And they didn't think the way they think now. And I don't know if it's their head goes up into the miter or if, it, <laughs> or, or if, it, if it's the structural position or you've got too much to protect or, or could it be, and I say this sympathetically, that, you know, when you're constantly attacked and hated, it's very hard not to be dualistic. Do you understand? And here's where the whole body of Christ has to, to say we own the collective evil of the world and we can't blame it on this person or that person. I have seen priest after priest and bishop after bishop. And of course, it, it's probably because they're not doing their spiritual work fully, but, but it's still understandable how they gradually get painted into a corner and just, you know, cocktail party with people who think just like they do read people who think just like they do, go out to dinner with people who think just like they do, uh, you know, as a recent president did, apparently. And when you do that, uh, wisdom stops. Huh? The dialogue that was just danced for us here stops. Where I was so glad, uh, whoever created this, I think Catherine did a lot of the work, that you had each one of them bowing to the mystery of their gift and to the mystery of their sin or their mistake, or their compulsion. I, I don't really care what word you use. But in this first talk, I'd like to make a connection between what we try to teach in contemplation and uh, what I think the Enneagram 
implicitly teaches, although I don't think a lot of, uh, of people who've even been good students of the Enneagram always get. So, um, what, what has to happen is we have to find what we call in contemplative work, we have to find an inner witness. Now I'm going to ask them to put up a, a, a screen uh, for you, a little PowerPoint. And this is a scripture, just so you don't think I'm totally rebellious and unchristian or whatever. You know? I love this scripture from Romans 8.14. He says, The Spirit you have received which it would be the Holy Spirit, presumably, and your own spirit, your human spirit, bear united witness. And what you can then see is that you are a part of God and God is a part of you. Now that's my Richard Rohr translation, but uh, I think it's fair to the text. Because you now see from a new united eye. Now if you'd show the next uh, screen... Here's what you're doing in early stage contemplation. You're helping people to develop what we call an inner witness. Almost as if you can detach from yourself. Not in an unhealthy way, in a very healthy way. Like I can stand back from Richard Rohr and look at him almost as if he's somebody else, right? <laughs> almost as if it's not me. I can watch my theater pieces. I can watch my dramas. I can watch my angers, my fears. Um, and I can look at me. You see the arrow going toward me. Uh, not in disconnection from me, but in a kind of objective freedom. That, that if, if someone would even laugh at me, or make fun of me, oh yeah, the ego's going to be offended for at least three minutes, maybe 30 minutes, maybe 30 days. But eventually, if I can reestablish my position inside the inner witness, this is what you're creating, I would say, in the first five, six years of your contemplative practice. You sit in the silence and you watch yourself play your endless, stupid, silly mind games. And you recognize they're almost all in your mind. Right? You have nothing to do with objective reality. That we are who we think we are, and it has to do with thinking. So until you can find some way to compartmentalize this thinking machine that keeps manufacturing identity and ego and superiority and inferiority and judgment for yourself, you're not going to move away from yourself at all. And I think, like few other tools, the Enneagram helps us to do that. You find a compassionate position whereby you can look back at your sixness uh, almost as if it's not you. <laughs> and you can say every three minutes, and it is, in my opinion, every three minutes, I'm doing it again. <laughs> I'm doing it again. Why that's threatening me is because I'm a six. Why I'm taking this approach is because I'm a six. It is just... The, the most utter humiliation you can experience, you know. <laughs> this is the weeping. This is the weeping. My God, I'm doing it again and again and again and again. And even the way I'm seeing it is a six way. Do you understand? I'm afraid of it. Uh, I, I judge myself by one criteria. And I hate myself by one criteria. You ones know what I'm talking about. 
we're merciless on ourselves. And because we're merciless in judging ourselves, it works for me. It allows me to, to find the critical word like I'm trying to do now. We become very good teachers, you know, because we're looking for the better word to communicate the, the experience. But it makes us horrible people to live with because the trouble is the way we treat ourselves is the way we treat everybody else. And you all do the same thing. You understand? So until you can create your inner witness who can compassionately, mercifully, at a distance, look back not just at me, as I have it in the diagram, but at the event or the person. Now you're not so much ego invested in it. Do you see? It's not me. Now, do you see why, as angry as I get at religion, why I can't give up on religion? Because only sincere religion, in-depth religion, gives you the long-term power to create the inner witness. <laughs> when your spirit stands with the spirit, it's a very fragile position if you have to psychologically create it every day. Do you understand? Or prove it to yourself every day. But when someone else is holding the position in you, for you, with you, that's why John's gospel calls the Holy Spirit the paraclete, the advocate. His spirit, her spirit, bears common witness with your spirit. You stand together. You believe with God, in God, through God. I can't hold the position long myself. The first time Richard gets angry or resentful, he loses it. You know what I'm talking about, right? Every one of you lose the position of the inner witness as soon as your ego is offended. As soon as you're in a stress situation, or as the alcoholics say, when you're tired or hungry. Isn't that tired, hungry? Lonely. Yeah, lonely too. Yeah. You know, we all lose it then. And spirituality goes out the window, especially if it's lightweight spirituality. It isn't really inner experience. It isn't based on insight. It's just because the Pope said so or the Bible said so. Maybe you saw that study just recently. And I'm glad they're trying it. You know, a lot of the churches have these abstinence covenants or pledges for 16-year-old girls and 17-year-old boys to promise that they'll never do it. All right? <laughs> And this is good. I mean, it's, it's all based on willpower, uh, not on insight. Do you understand? Willpower proceeds from God said it. If you had enough willpower and if you were really Christian, you'd do it, damn it. You know, now do it, all right? There's overwhelming evidence that willpower religion does not work based on authority. Just someone, your mother told you not to do it. Did that stop you? All right. <laughs> Your daddy told you not to do it. Did that stop you? They're the big authorities, aren't they supposed to be? In fact, as already the story of Genesis tells us, it actually sets in motion the opposite. <laughs> as, as the principle goes, every reaction sets in motion an equal and opposite reaction. Precisely because God said it, the Pope said it, the bishop said it, or my mother said it, it actually gives it a new attraction. That's the meaning of the apple in Genesis, all right? And God knows that. Huh? That's why law doesn't work. You tell people, don't you dare do that ever. You can be certain they'll do it at that point. Right? <laughs> you just hope the fear motivation will last 
to a certain degree. But when you train people, as we have trained our people, in that lowest level of willpower and fear, uh, what you do, and please trust me on this, uh, I'll try to unpackage it more, but what you do is you make access to the higher motivations almost unnecessary. So when they're really needed to do this just for love, I don't know how to do things for love. I'll tell you when I learned that. I've, I've told this in, in different contexts over the years. When I was back in Cincinnati, I had a, a bunch of Jewish friends, and they were really brilliant Jewish friends. And they sort of admired what we were doing at New Jerusalem and, and our work, and so they'd love to dialogue with me. And um, I remember one night after a scotch and soda, and they were a little freer, and I was a little freer, but they said to me, they said, Richard, we know you're a Christian. We respect your, your Catholicism and your Christianity, but you don't really believe that Jesus is God. Do you believe that? You're an intelligent person, right? <laughs> he was a human being like everybody else. Uh, we're monotheists, and you're supposed to be monotheists. We don't understand this Trinity thing, but, but you don't believe that. I said, yeah, I guess I do. Really? And they didn't disrespect me in any way. But um, then I went back and told some folks this. And I remember every time I would tell that story, uh, Christians' common response was, well, you know, you got to believe that, or why would you obey the commandments? Or, <laughs> or why would you, you know, you better not tell that to kids, that it might not really be true because there's no other way we'll keep social order without it. You follow me? <laughs> that it wasn't really any inner experience of God, but the belief that you need a great lawgiver at the top, and at a certain level that's true, but because most of the world is at lower level of motivation, and the only way you're going to get them to do it is say, you're going to go to hell and burn for all eternity if you don't do it. All right? That's the only level you can appeal to. But when Christians would again and again say they couldn't understand my Jewish friends who didn't believe in eternal life, didn't believe in the divinity of Christ, believed that when you died, you died. These were more secular Jews. They were just aghast because some of these Jewish friends in Cincinnati were some of the most engaged social justice people in the city who cared about the poor, who cared about justice, far more than most Catholics and most Christians. And uh, the Christians just couldn't get it in their head. Well, why would they do that? Mm -hmm. They didn't realize they were giving away their low level of motivation. Mm -hmm. That the only reason we do these dang things is just in case the whole thing's true. Do you understand? <laughs> it's Pascal's wager, you know? That's what happens when you don't have morality based on insight, on really seeing, hey, this is describing what's really happening. It's not just an arbitrary commandment. So what I'd like to end this talk with, and I'll ask you to follow me up with the PowerPoint images, I'm just going to try to describe how you create that inner witness, either by contemplation or the anagram, and the best is if you have both. Because I think if you just have the anagram, and it's merely a mental game or a psychological tool without inner transformation, it doesn't tend to go that deep. It goes far deeper than most other systems. But I've still met too many egocentric, greedy, prideful, 
people who are brilliant in the Enneagram. Do you understand? <laughs> they know it all, but the ego is clearly still in control. It's not their fault. They have no inner witness where their spirit bears united witness with the spirit. They have no uh, place to stand like Archimedes. Give me a lever and a place to stand and I can move the world. We just stand inside of our supposedly redeemed eightness. <laughs> but that redemption doesn't go very far when all I have is me. And that's my experience. So I'm going to describe them quickly. They're up on the screen. You must be able to stand back from me, what you think is me. You must be able, second, to compassionately and calmly observe me. Compassionately, calmly, not hatefully, not judgmentally. Third, along with the event or person, and apart from how it affects me positively or negatively, in itself and for itself. So it's not just observing me, but also observing this situation that you and I are upset about. Let's look at this with a kind of ego freedom, a kind of calmness, uh, apart from whether I'm going to make money from it, whether I'm going to lose money from it. Do you see how much freedom that takes? How many people do you know who have that kind of freedom? It's not a big amount. Because they don't have the inner witness. Fourth, to see me and my dramas, as I said before, almost as if they were not me. St. Francis said this to us in his... Uh, one of his writings. He said, you should almost see yourself as if you're a dead corpse. And I remember when I heard that, it sounded so negative, especially for someone I thought was a seven. But I, I, I can realize what he was saying. You know, you've got to be that detached. It's someone other than you and he's dead. We call that the death of the false self. That's a, what's supposed to happen in classic initiation. In fact, I would say that would be my indication of an initiated person who can stand back, detached, and see the difference between their true self and the false self, which is the ego self, which is what's going to die and what precisely you are not. If you're unable to detach from me, is the fifth point, you are always over-identified with me. Take that as an axiom, as a principle. If you can't detach, you're over-identified. If you cannot stand back and see Barbara over there, if you cannot stand back and see Vanessa over there, all right, then you're far too identified with Vanessa. Do you see? That, that's the Vanessa that's going to pass away. That's the Vanessa that's going to die. The true self, the inner witness, stands with the eternal you, the God self, the Buddha self, the Christ self, use whatever word you want, I don't really care. But it's bigger than you, and it's beyond you, and it doesn't go up and down. <laughs> it's not emotionally manipulatable like the false self is. The false self is up and down, up and down, moment by moment, whether I'm making money or whether people like me or whether I'm popular, or whether I'm being entertained. Brothers and sisters, this is most of the world, right? <laughs> The overwhelming amount of the world lives at that level. Now, if you think this word ego is a dangerous new word introduced by some of us, I'd uh, go back to Paul, and almost always when he uses the word flesh, 
He's talking about what we're talking about when we talk about ego, right? The flesh self is the ego self, same thing. Six, you have to be able to see yourself in this way. And this is the beginning of the revelation of the false self, the ego as not really me, and the loss of its power. Now here's where the Enneagram is so brilliant, that, that you get the insight. That's not me, and I don't have to do that. <laughs> it, you, it loses its addictive power. The scaffolding starts falling away once you get the insight on how silly it is to be a compulsive seven or a compulsive anything. Seven, when you can learn to live here regularly, that would be daily prayer. You will be in a good position to start realizing the true self. Because you, at least who you thought was you up to now, is finally out of the way, and you're falling into what the great spiritual teachers would call awareness. That's what we mean by being aware. You're falling into pure consciousness. It's not consciousness of me, it's pure consciousness, which is what allows you to be compassionate with other people, and why racial distinctions at that point make no difference. They're nothing but cosmetic, you understand? But if you haven't passed that point, the fact that he has brown skin is really significant to you. <laughs> Once you've passed it, you know that's completely arbitrary. Questions of gender, race, religion, sexual identity simply are not the essential self. We're not going to be able to address these questions, do you understand, of racism. The story I've been using since August, I addressed the major religious superiors in Denver. This beautiful Mexican nun came up to me. She said she grew up in Greeley, Colorado. She said, Richard, sometimes I wonder why I became a nun. When I was a little Catholic girl, the Anglos sat in the center pews and we Mexicans had to sit on the side. 1962 Catholic America raised on the Baltimore Catechism, all right? <laughs> Thinking they loved the Eucharist. And they didn't experience the first level of transformation of the Eucharist. To think it means anything to God, whether you're Mexican or whether you're white, right? And Mexicans forced to sit on the side in a Catholic church as late as 1962, all right? So don't tell me we were a mature religion. When, when the very basic question of racism, the color of a skin, matters to people, you know we've got infantile Christianity. Uh, and for our purposes, I'd say Christianity that hadn't been informed by a critical tool like the Enneagram. Very quickly, number eight, meditators and Buddhists would call this the stable witness, if you're coming from that tradition, which is attained by discipline and practice, leading to realization of union with being itself. And God bless, they're good at that because they're much more disciplined than most Christians are in holding the position of the inner witness and looking back at the self critically and objectively. Uh, we so much relied on the Spirit praying in us that we didn't use much discipline. Most Christians' prayer lives tend to be very undisciplined or they just think it's saying things to God. But it's not really a new set of eyes. Next position, Christians would call this the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is realized primarily by surrender and trust in a divine union which is already given. 
You don't attain the Holy Spirit. You don't earn the Holy Spirit. You don't achieve the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you don't get the Holy Spirit because the bishop laid his hands on you. I, I'm all for confirmation. But you've got to know that's just a symbol. It doesn't make it happen. It already happened. This is just to tell you, hey boy, it happened. Do you know it? You got the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but you had it since the first moment of your conception. But maybe until now you didn't know about it. And my job is to tell you, you've got the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and you all got it, equally and forever. That's the, the foundation of Christian prayer and Christian transformation. We need some discipline to keep seeing this, to keep trusting this union apart from all the contrary evidence. And those are the dark sides that we're talking about. The contrary evidence of each of your numbers that comes up every day and says, see what a phony you are. See how fearful you are. See how righteous you are. See how lustful and arrogant you are. All of that's true. But it does not block out the objective center, the objective grace or gift, as we call it in the Enneagram. Finally, uh, quoting John 14, this spirit will teach you all things. And I love that English word, remind you. There's the mind that is given, the indwelling presence that knows, already knows who you are, hidden with Christ in God. But you need on your psychological level, on your anagram level, to be reminded. You follow me? <laughs> of what is your initial mind your initial identity, that's the work of religion. All we can do is remind you. And all the anagram can do is remind you of who you truly and always and forever are. Thank you. Thank you. For more information on this and other conferences presented by the Center for Action and Contemplation, call 505-247-1636 or visit the CAC website at www.cacradicalgrace.org.